0: A
1: moon. Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love people who love cats and dogs, which is why I wrote the Dog Bible, Everything Your Dog Wants You to Know, and the Cat Bible, Everything Your Cat Expects You to Know. Every week, I bring you conversations with experts and authors who share our fascination with the animals in our world. This program originated and continues for the 13th year on 88.3 WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. There is a podcast library with more than 700 previous shows at radiopetlady.com along with my other pet talk shows like Cat Chat and Good Dogs. This show is made possible in part with the support of Waruva, a family-owned pet food company that makes high-protein recipes for cats and dogs. The show is also brought to you with the generosity of Dr. Elsie's Precious Cat, a privately-owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian. Today I have the rare pleasure of spending the whole hour with one guest, the author of a book that I think is just mind-boggling, How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World by Henry Mance. Now, I will tell you, as you will hear in the interview, that I think that the title misrepresents what this book is really about and the joy and information and heartlifting ideas that it has in it. I am neither a vegan nor a vegetarian, and this book, while written by a vegan, about, in part, about how we treat the animals that we eat, it's also about zoos, it's about the Amazon jungle. He's British, therefore dry wit, incredibly brilliant, a Financial Times reporter, the London Financial Times. I promise you, to those of you that don't have a dog or a cat, and Don't even care that much about the issues of factory farming or dairy farming. You have such a pleasurable conversation to listen in on. And I just urge you, please buy this book. It will stun and surprise you. It is not at all what you expect. Here is Henry Mance for the whole hour with his book, How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. All right, folks, sit back in whatever chair you're in. Lean back because we are going to have a whole hour. You know how rarely I do this, but I have to devote the entire hour of this show for everybody's sake and joy and delight and edification to a book written by Henry Mance. He's the chief features writer at the Financial Times in London. It's hard to believe it's his first book. It seems like the book we all always knew needed to exist. The title is a little... To me, uh, it, it doesn't really represent the greatness of this book. It's called How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. It is really about how to love the earth, how to love other people. It's got philosophy, history, ethology, ecology, biology. This book makes you laugh so often and not exactly cry, but just feel like, oh, my God, what have we done and what should we do? Henry, you've you've done something uh, totally mind-boggling. You have stitched together, in, in my view, everything we need to know and think about the planet and ourselves as humans and done it with such grace and wit and personal uh, application. You've been to these places, you've done these things, and you describe it without any hyperbole. But boy, what an accomplishment! Congratulations,
0: Tracy. Thank you so much for saying that. It makes it it makes it all worthwhile to to hear that it's um, touched you in that way. I really hoped that I could write a book that that would kind of explore, you know, the real depth of feeling people have for animals. I see it um, in my friends, in my family, in my own life that people, you know, people care and they want to know what they can do uh, differently or better and. And so this book is, is my journey, but I hope that it, it, sort of, it reaches out and touches other people, too.
1: I think the problem for me when I saw the, the title of the book was, oh, dear, here we go again. Somebody's going to tell me I should be a vegan and why. And then they're <laughs> going to tell me, you know, because in America, I don't know if they were published in, in Britain, there have been a number of books. You know, why do we eat some animals and love others? And it's like, OK, that's interesting. We get it we get it and those of us who eat everything you know as you point out throughout the book you know it, it feel terrible or don't even know better or also cognitive dissonance which we need to talk about because the book relies so heavily on pointing out to us how we segregate parts of our brain and our and our feelings in order to do things that we, we think or know or guess might not be good. But to me, what's incredible at the book is all the things we have no idea are bad. No idea. All my f- friends who are fishetarians, pescetarians, you know, they, oh, they're so high and mighty and they're so superior. Oh, no, I only eat fish. You know, wow, they should really read your incredible chapter, The Ocean Always Loses. Fish aren't. Fish are many things, as Jonathan Balcombe says, who's the, the great fishologist. I know that's not a word, but to me, that's who he is. <laughs> there's no such like. thing as fish. You know, fishes, there's many different kinds, hundreds, thousands of species. So I, I really wish that there was some way that everyone listening could understand if there's one book you buy. I really mean this from the bottom of my heart in this whole year, in 2021. Buy this book. This book is going to fill your heart and mind with so many ideas and so many thoughts, and enrich you in ways that are, are completely nothing to do with animals. To me, it has to do with our 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 poor understanding of how we how we are in the world with each other and the planet. Animals is only sort of part of it. I, I think that the cognitive dissonance part of it is really interesting did you did you feel or uh, that you should write about that right away because it weaves all through it you know i think that it's very hard for us to hold all these different ideas in our head of good and bad do you do you think that that's that people like to see things in black and white and that's one of the problems it's so gray you paint such in a in a intellectual way such a gray world
0: yeah, I think um and part of the reason the book isn't isn't a kind of lecture or it isn't sanctimonious and I wanted to, I wanted it really to be an exploration is because that's my life, you know, most of my life I've I've eaten meat. Um most of my life I've um I sort of had different views to the ones I have now and I've gone sort of learning gradually and I feel like I will keep learning about how to um you know live well on this planet and with other people and with um other animals. And I I think you know so part of what i was trying to do was explain what, how that's possible how how we're able to be incredibly kind and generous with our dogs and cats but not so much with our pigs and chickens and our cows and you have to ask well you know what's the explanation because I, i'm also trying to trying to open people's minds a, a little um to things that they they may not be aware of and then you have to say you know what are you you know what are you trying to break down what are the what are the mental barriers? And I think we're, we're, we're incredibly good at holding contradictory um, ideas in our head. And I think, you know, just the fact that we're used to eating cows means that we don't really appreciate their social lives and the fact that they will have desires. And the fact that we're used to seeing elephants in zoos or giraffes in zoos will mean that we don't really think of them as individual as sentient beings who might want to take, take decisions and control of their own lives. And so I was trying to understand how does that come about?
1: Well, how about dairy? I mean, let's just jump right to the topic of, uh, you know, the people who say, oh, no, I would never eat meat. And you talk and there's a, a book and a, a full length documentary called Cowspiracy, the sustainability secret. I interviewed the author, filmmaker years ago, the The idea that dairy farming uh, that milk and cheese are harsher on the planet and that and, – and you – your extraordinary, marvelous description of dairy cows and calves and how they live is much harsher and much worse, if you will, than meat eating. And yet, who's going to give up cheese and butter and the great chefs of the world? You talk about all these things, all the ways in which there's an impact. Did that surprise you or did you already know this? Because the Financial Times – it has a very rarefied audience, right? I mean, in theory, it's people interested in the financial world. But when there's a features writer, like in the Wall Street Journal, the features are some of the best journalism around and don't necessarily have to do with the impact of the financial markets in the world. It's other things going on. Did, did Were you aware of the dairy industry, its impact, and the fact that it'd be much better to give up milk and cottage cheese and ricotta and mozzarella before you stop eating meat, if that's your choice,
0: Tracy. I was really shocked. I was really stunned, and it goes against. You know, we, we rely on on these kind of shorthands. Yes. And if you see if you see ricotta or mozzarella on your plate, well, you know, it's a kind of it's a shade of white. It looks clean. It looks um, bloodless. Um, and likewise, you know, people see red meat on their plate and they have an idea of, oh, wow, this comes from some kind of, uh, kind of animal. This is violent in some way. And yes. I'll see a well clear of that, but actually, you know, white meat and, uh, chickens in particular probably live, you know, worse lives than many, many beef cows. And then when it comes to dairy, I think really for me, it was realizing what dairy involves. And, um, it was a real shock, you know, thinking through the process of impregnation or separation of. Um, a cow and her calf at you know often immediately generally within twenty four hours, and then a life which is kind of de- devoted to to producing milk for um, for for people rather than for your calf and I think that that is in many ways a much more brutal and um, controlling process than Simply having some, you know, uh, pasture-fed beef cows who are out there and who produce, you know, a steak on your plate. Um, and so the, you know, for me, dairy was was a real shock. And our, our you know, our, our culture t- treats dairy as if as if it's a kind of process without intervention, without death, without without um, right. the without pain for the animals. Yeah,
1: and also yeah. the the impact on the planet. So the book, I'm going to have you start reading some sections that I've picked out because I don't want people to think it's like, oh, my God, we're going to have to be in, you know, in the veal house and watch the little calf crying for its mother. I mean, the calf's crying for its mother. The mother's crying for the calf. But we're not allowed to think those thoughts around dairy. But the impact on the – and you don't in any way make – I never felt like, oh, I'm gonna cry or throw up or anything during the book in descriptions of the incredible ways that whether it's laboratory animals or farmed animals, uh, you know, they're suffering. It's more the global impact of it, that everything's connected. That to me, Henry, is the incredible part of the book. Everything is connected. You think eating an egg is not such a big deal. It doesn't have a face, as you point out. But then you talk about chick hatcheries and culling the males, which I didn't know existed until I saw the movie Minari, which I only saw because one of the actors won an Academy Award for it. And this little chicks and burning up, burning alive, the little boy chicks, because they're useless. They can't make eggs. And the fact that Free cage-free chickens may suffer more than the ones in the horrible battery cages. I mean, you talk about this, but not in a way that's preachy. It's just to inform us. Everything that we don't see, we don't know. And you went to each of these places. You went there. You witnessed it. And you recorded it, but without emotion, without trying to stir us up, you know, you were not holding a placard kind of person. And I think that's what makes the book so incredibly interesting and makes you feel, one feel smarter and wiser without feeling shamed or guilty or stupid because all the, we've had to, to have cognitive dissonance in order to live with all these contradictions, but mostly to live with things we knew nothing about. So the the impact on the planet, Mm. The planet itself, you bring in a huge amount, climate change, and you talk about insects. You talk about so many kinds of trees and flowers, things that have to matter to everyone. Can you read just – I'm randomly picking chapter seven about the rainforest to give people an idea of how you weave in the most contemporary things like a show on Netflix and – and have us understand it in a context that you've you've made this. You have to read the whole book because each chapter unfolds another layer of this kind of baklava of ideas that's just crispy and there's wonderful things between each layer. And I think it's okay to eat baklava. Maybe, <laughs> maybe, maybe walnuts didn't suffer and the honeybees didn't exactly suffer, but we'll discuss that later. So if you could just read the beginning of Nothing But Footprints, and it does have two quotes at the beginning, which I think um, are uh, typical of the quotes you pick. Very smart and funny.
0: Great. The first quote is by Rachel Carson. And she says, who has decided, who has the right to decide for the countless legions of people who were not consulted that the supreme value is a world without insects, even though it be also a sterile world ungraced by the curving wing of a bird in flight. By land. They're not making it anymore. That's Mark Twain. Near the beginning of the Netflix series Narcos, a US drug enforcement agent flies from Miami to Bogota, Colombia. From the plane, he looks down on the Amazon rainforest and seems unimpressed. Like many things in Narcos, this is pretty annoying. (laughs) The, The Amazon doesn't begin until a few hundred miles south of Bogota. So if you see it en route from Miami, your pilot is lost. The Amazon is one of the most beautiful sights on Earth, so even a cynical drugs cop would be impressed. From the air, you can see endless tree canopies and tea-coloured rivers, waves of clouds, and the occasional rainbow. You can't help but think of the creatures who live away from our observation and oblivious to our existence. Jaguars, toucans, snakes, a single acre of rainforest holds perhaps 6,000 insect species. A tree is a tree. How many more do you need to look at? Ronald Reagan once said. He was wrong. Scale matters. The bigger the forest, the greater the variety of species that is found in each acre. But the most annoying thing is Narco's suggestion that what looks like animal habitat is in fact mostly cocaine laboratories. At 10,000 feet, Colombia was a paradise of untouched rainforest, narrates the US agent. Things were different on the ground. Pablo Escobar and his partners built superlabs the size of small cities. In other words, to save the rainforest, stop the drugs. When I traveled to Colombia for the first time as a postgraduate student in 2005, I had a similar idea. I'd read newspaper articles blaming deforestation on middle-class cocaine users. As well as being a human tragedy, Colombia's drug-fueled war seemed bad for the environment. It was easy to point to examples why, from coca farms and cocaine uh, cocaine labs, where chemicals were tipped into the forest, to oil spills caused by gorillas blowing up pipelines. We were the animal lovers. They were the barbarians.
1: So that's just a great example of how you weave into your thought process and then encourage us to weave into our thought process so many different aspects of how we of how our ideas are formed, how we perceive something, how our perception is manipulated by you at some point in the book you refer to Black Beauty, one of the books that most of we mm-hmm. animal lovers will never forget. Merry Legs and Oh my God, those horses and you know, their 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 happy life, their bad life, the, the point of view of animals. But you have the point of view of a forest. You have the point of view of the sea. And you and you give us that ability to kind of have a 360 mind that doesn't just see or go, I read something or I know this. It's more like, yeah, but whatever you heard or know, it's only a tiny piece of the puzzle. And to me, that's that's really one of the great beauties of this book, besides your wit, besides the, the facts that you uncover. We're, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back... I'd like to, to go continue with this idea of conservation. Mm. Of course it affects many animals, but you you talk about Tompkins conservation, you talk about and, and you always depict fascinating people who've been the 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 engines behind good works or perhaps bad works, but it, it puts again everything in a human context of people make choices. And the choices have ramifications and the ramifications have ramifications. And it's just, it's fantastic. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, I'll talk, continue talking to Henry Mance and, and try to cover at least some of the incredible topics that, that he brings up in his book, How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. We'll be right back. This show is supported in part by Meet Me, a privately owned farm in Virginia that makes raw frozen foods and dehydrated treats for cats and dogs using animals raised on their own farm. This show is also brought to you by Merrick Pet Food, which began as a family run company in Texas 30 years ago, where they are still making natural pet food. I am back for the second part of a full show with Henry Mance. The author of the book that I would like to rename, please read this book if you read no other book this year. And if you don't read books, read this one anyway. It's called How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. Uh, Henry, uh, I had touched on the issue of conservation. And and you have some fantastic characters, people in the book that you maybe already knew about them just because you're a a worldwide journalist or maybe you learned about them in, in order to do research for this book. But the the Tompkins conservation, very interesting guy. Um, Talk a little bit about what this man did. He he made a giant fortune and decided to plow it all into conserving the earth, which was kind of unique. So talk about him.
0: Yeah, Doug Tompkins made his fortune in clothing and uh, then fell out with his wife, was in process of getting separated, lost control of his company. And decided you know what can i do i could i could devote my money to art and wine things that i like or i could make a real difference and um he went to chile and he spent half a million dollars buying a a cattle and sheep farm and at that time in chile in south america the government had tried to encourage people to go out to these far-flung places and start livestock um, farming but it wasn't profitable and so he was able to go in there and, and start buying up some of these lands and over the next couple of decades, he really cr- created this extraordinary uh, body of work, which was returning natural spaces to um, a much wilder form ret- and returning the animals there um, and really, you know, creating a, a, a wildness that we're losing on this planet. And I, th- for me, it was such, a, it's such an amazing story. I mean, he was a, to do this is not easy. You know, you need to be. A, a, like a, a clever guy, like him and his um, uh, his his wife, um, both very impressive characters. You need to have a real force of will because he had a lot of people in the government, a lot of people in uh, in business who were against him. He protested against salmon farms, um, against hydroelectric dams, and a lot of people wanted to get him out because he was uh, he was speaking against their interests. Some people thought he was some kind of foreign agent in in South America, um, and he, you know, he had a lot of money. He had millions and hundreds of millions of of dollars. But I think unlike a lot of a lot of today's billionaires, he spent them really well. He didn't you know, you can buy paintings for 60, 70 million dollars if you're if you're incredibly rich. But he decided to plow it back into the land to give it this um, this space. And for me, I was I was sort of asking, what can we do for wild animals. You know, we love jaguars. We love orangutans. We love lions. And we see these animals disappearing. And I I worry that in, you know, in my children's lifetime, there will be far fewer around. And the the most important thing is to find space for these animals. You know, the earth isn't isn't getting any bigger. Um, There's only so much space. And if we use more of it for ourselves and more of it for our livestock, well, there's less and less for the wild animals. And and so this is really the direction I think we need to move in what Tompkins, um, uh, conservation has done, which is to buy up those, those um, cattle and sheep farms that aren't profitable and turn them into to wild spaces where, um, some of the, you know, some of the most majestic animals on earth can roam.
1: And And uh, let me just interrupt and say that you also are extremely pragmatic and you make us pragmatic and knowledgeable. It's not like, oh, just let all the grass grow back and the trees come back and let nature take its course. At some point in the book you say, but nature needs a bit of help, especially since we've been interfering for so long. So he, he sold off the sheep and the cattle. It, we're talking tens, hundreds of thousands of acres, big pieces of land. To rewild it, he had to learn and be educated about what animals should be put in there that, with the whole food chain, predators, prey, and, and, let, and then let nature take its course once you restock it. I mean, I think that's the important thing isn't just, oh, good, we'll just leave it all go wild because that doesn't do any good because, as you've discussed many places in the book, then you just have a whole lot of deer. I mean, at least in our in our Western world, like, oh, my God, there's just nothing but deer because they have no 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 one wants to eat them other than a few humans. And and I think what these people do, which is very rare, they educate themselves and they don't just have some fantasy. Oh, I love jaguars and lions. Let's get some of those. You know, it's more let have people who really understand habitat and understand species do it properly. You also talk about an Englishman, such a British name, we don't have any names like this in America, Merlin Hanbury Tennyson, Hanbury Tennyson being a hyphenated name, divided his property in England into ordinary property, if you will, to be used for a farm. And the other half, he turned into rainforest in England. I mean, people can do it in a micro way too, can't they?
0: Yeah, and, and uh, believe me, we don't have many names like that in England either. It's an incredible name. Um, and I thought this guy um, Merlin was a was a really brilliant character. I mean, he'd 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 fought in Afghanistan with the British Army, he'd suffered, you know, real mental um, health challenges, and he'd come back to this corner of Southwest England and he'd found peace. And I think that gave him an attachment to the land that you know, many people in office jobs have completely lost. And he was able to say, right, you know, this, this land means something to me. It can mean something to other people too, but to create this, um, this world, I, I need to make sure that the animals have space and people, people, I grew up in London and we, I've grown up to, to see as beautiful an English countryside with rolling green Hills. But that, that vision of the English countryside is is a bare one is a is a is a barren one because on those green fields there aren't many insects aren't many birds there aren't many mammals
1: right
0: and so it's changing our idea of beauty and, and this rainforest that that exists in in southwest england and cornwall i never knew existed in my country you know just a few hours from london and it, the thought that it can return if we give it the space and of course there, as you say there's nothing natural now there's nothing completely outside are, are controlled so we're always taking decisions and I think we'll, there's a lot of trial and error going on whether it's in America or, or the UK or in in Africa about how you return spaces um to to nature but it's it's always it's always a a sort of hybrid process now, and it involves us taking decisions. But I think if we do that with humility and we do that with the with the you know right intentions, then I think we can we can really get somewhere. And you know, I think of our kids. I think I yes. think that it, um, they should not have you know they should not be brought up on this amazing diet of storybooks showing beautiful animals from all over the world, and then be told. Oh, actually, the natural world's disappearing. We have to offer a story of hope about how we return, how we keep some of the um, some of that wildness, and how we how we feel that our our presence on on this earth is a positive one. And I really felt with Tompkins, and Doug Tompkins sadly died in a, a kayaking accident a few years ago, um, but I think he can say. I've had a, I've had a positive impact on this, on this earth. And I think Merlin Henry Tennyson, you know, he, he thinks about the next few decades running a, a farm originally bought by his father. I think he will be able to say, you know, I left, I left my corner of this earth in a better situation, in a better condition than I found it.
1: It, it. That's very well said. And I, I thought during reading that, that section of, of friends of mine, um, my friend grew up in America. She's become British. She has a British husband and children and they inherited a 2,000-acre farm, which originally had been owned by his father, who bred and raised horses alongside the queen. But when they inherited it, they had this much different vision of the land. And at some point they were farming it and continue to farm parts of it. And in some part they have a heritage beef. But what they've really been interested in is putting up wetlands for certain kinds of birds. I've even been there when we've put out certain kinds of food at certain times of the year for certain kinds of birds and there's a, a blind where you don't shoot birds, but you can watch them, and ponds and certain kinds of trees and bluebell forests that are are preserved for certain kinds of birds. The idea that, th- that they want to change this land into something that can be useful to some extent in terms of maybe being farmed, although they keep changing that to be ecologically correct, but to to that those 2000 acres could become something of a refuge for at least the birds if not the insects that accompany them to and and there used to be fox hunting on the property something that you talk about in the book and and that has gone away so evolutionarily the people are evolving thank goodness some of them but you know you say in the book that some you know saudi prince spent X hundreds of millions for some tiny little Leonardo da Vinci painting that'll sit there. But for that same amount of money, somebody could make a rainforest somewhere. They could actually make one. So any of you billionaires listening, if you have the time to listen, you know, look away from your iPhone for a minute and don't worry if you're wearing the right kind of Gucci sneakers, it would be a great thing to do instead of trying to buy the most expensive wine on the wine list at Nick and Tony's to think about, gee, what could I do that would really put a positive stamp on the planet, even small. You know, you don't have to buy up half of the Chilean wilderness. But if you could, do that too. I, I think it's it's quite wonderful. I you you have a, a chapter called The Ark of History and it's about zoos. And when I say about zoos, I mean so many incredible stories and and ways of looking at zoos historically and now and the animals. And it's not like, oh, boo-hoo, it's also terrible, the poor trapped animals. It's much more interesting than that. There's so much richness to everything that you write. But this, this chapter, which I'd love you to read the beginning of, it does talk about these kinds of landed gentry families, in this case the Aspinals, and how the next generation and the generation after that keep tweaking it if they're good people, they tweak it instead of just how much can I hang on to and how much can I keep? So we like, well, what can I do with this? So if you would read from the beginning of chapter six, the arc of history, it's hilarious.
0: The zoo cannot but disappoint. John Berger. I've inherited a hypocrisy, not a bureaucracy, a hypocrisy. Damien Aspinall has the confidence that comes with being very rich, very tall and quite good looking. The hypocrisy he's referring to comes in the form of two zoos, Howlett's and Port Limpney animal parks in south-east England, were set up by his father, the maverick gambler John Aspinall, in the 1970s. By the time Aspinall Sr. died in the year 2000, Aspinall Jr. had decided that this form of keeping animals in captivity was a waste of money and morally wrong. The only way I could justify taking over the park's was if I could find ways to get as many animals back into the wild, he tells me. So far, so Freudian. <laughs> the Aspinals are hardly the first family where the son is happily picking apart the father's legacy. What's different is the boldness of the son's vision. He has become perhaps the loudest opponent of zoos worldwide. It's like Donald Trump Jr. launching a crusade against tax avoidance. <laughs> Damien Aspinall wants to abolish zoos, even though he runs two of them. We are meeting in his grand offices near London's Sloan Square. He sits under a framed Damien Hirst print. I'm opposite a handwritten birthday note from Pele. <laughs> if you take your kids to a zoo, you are telling them subconsciously that you can watch that tiger in a small cage. You can watch those poor elephants. You can watch the lions. And it's okay because they're there for you, kids. Those animals have got fewer rights than you. We can enslave them just so you can enjoy yourself. Isn't it time that we looked at ourselves as a species and said, Come on, we don't need to do that anymore. We're polluting our children's minds. I must look anxious because Aspinall moves to reassure me. I don't blame people. It's not their fault, he says. They've been culturalized. The Aspinall philosophy, defended both by zoo-loving father and zoo-hating son, holds that all animals, or at least all mammals, are as valuable as humans. It holds, too, that humans can live harmoniously alongside even the fiercest species, Like posh Mowgli's, the family has surrounded itself with tigers and apes. The house was full of them. John Aspinall, a dislikable man who admired Hitler's views on eugenics, once said he'd rather leave his children with a gorilla than a social worker. Damien placed his first two babies with gorillas for a get-to-know-you session, although by the time the third came along, he decided not to risk an intervention by social services.
1: (laughs) It's just amazing the characters that you find in this book – you find them either by learning about them, uh, you know, historically, but also you visit them. You're there, like boots on the ground, in in the great journalistic fashion. At, at one point in the book, I thought of, of, uh, you know, those books that were, were were written a long time ago about, well, I, you know, I'll write about football from the inside out and try to play football like a footballer, and that was kind of an interesting, I, I say, I think 1960s or 70s journalistic idea. Put yourself in the shoes but you actually go to these places and in, in one case early on in the book to just jump around in, in terms of uh, storyline you go to a a factory a, a slaughterhouse an abattoir where sheep are are separated from their from their hides from their wool and you describe it and you talk about it and the the dehumanizing effect and the physical danger to the men so you we're obviously reading your description and we're thinking about these sheep and how they died and how they're on this this you know hanging from these hooks and and being pulled along but you help us to understand this is how you get a lamb chop. This is even how you get well not necessarily how you get the wool for your coat because those animals tend to be kept alive at least for some part of their life. But everything is connected and and there's a connection between, you're very aware of your children, your young children, and you bring that up a lot. You know, what we do does matter. How we talk matters and what we show them matters, whether it's a fake version of the world in a in a children's fairy book or taking them to a zoo and acting as if it's okay. And when I grew up, circuses, I grew up a lot in Italy where circuses were paid for by the government. The Italian government felt that everyone... In every little town across the country should have the experience of a circus where there was a hippopotamus living in a kiddie pool. That's the only water he ever had. And all the, lots of other animals living, I mean, much worse than in a zoo. But I was I was made to believe that this was so fun. And I loved it until a friend from America visited and burst out crying, crying, grown woman, when I said – Well, we're going to the zoo. I mean, to the circus. Sorry, it's in Kamuchia. She said, "Really?" And she was distraught because there was a picture of this hippo in a kiddie pool. And I—it took me years to understand. I mean, even with me being so animal-centric, how awful this was. I thought, well, this is great. Everyone gets to see a hippo. Why does everyone need to see a hippo? They don't need to see a hippo, right? I mean, it's like you—you write about going to Indonesia on your honeymoon and snorkeling on a barrier reef and the gorgeousness of it, and then wondering, because you do think of things in a 360-degree view, what about the plane trip you and your new wife took, the plane trip? And what were the carbon emissions of that? And was that naughty? And did that somehow mean that you shouldn't be taking those trips to please yourself to see something that's endangered? I mean, everything there are just so many ramifications of everything we do and we we have to if we choose to do it we have to do it intelligently and knowingly isn't that part of the issue that we have to think twice about what we're doing
0: yeah i mean i really think that previous generations and you know my parents and the generations that came before them they solved incredible problems you know like human health uh they built yes. incredible cities and I look at the, I, I look at the situation we have today and it's just different. You know, it's just it, the challenges we have to face. Um, the challenges we have to face now are are really of a different nature. And I, 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 I think that we should rise to them and we should realize that, you know, change has always happened. We've always reassessed how we act um, based on what we know. And it, for, for me, the most interesting thing about zoos was understanding that these places I'd been as a kid, I went to London Zoo, which is, you know, a very famous, very yes. established—you know, yes. arguably the first modern zoo, um, nearly 200 years old—and I, I had to realize that it hadn't been created for the animals' benefit. You know, it had been created <laughs> out of kind of scientific curiosity, and I was suddenly like, "Oh, well, right, so if you were to create a zoo, this isn't where you do it. You wouldn't do it in this small little space in the center right. of London. Right? You wouldn't try and cram in all the animals you yes. can. Yes. You would do it, um, you know, in somewhere with lots of space." And you would only have animals there who, who really work in small spaces, enjoy our English climate, which can be a bit <laughs> up and a bit down, um, so probably not elephants. And um, you do it with the hope of of really securing places for those animals to live in the wild. Um, and and so I went on this, uh, and I understand why in the 19th century, it was an amazing thing to see a hippopotamus, sure. to see a giraffe, you know, school children, you know, came round, But now, you know, we have TV, That's right. uh, documentaries, we don't need to keep these animals in that confined space for our benefit. And so we should reassess, we should say, well, Look, can't we do this better? And and so, and certainly with with flying around the world, which I know people felt was an amazing liberation, and I've been privileged to go to to wonderful places. But I, I can't really justify it to myself in the same way. I can't, I certainly I find it strange people who, who sort of, Take a cruise ship to Antarctica to see the melting of the ice. You know, oh but
1: when right. they're melting the You're ice right.
0: themselves, I mean, yes. you, you know, there's only so many times you need to remind yourself that's happening. So I, I, I personally stick, steer away from that stuff. But I think you can see amazing nature and amazing wildlife on your doorstep. You know, if you if you just have the imagination and if you just find beauty where it occurs. And yes. so I think we, um, th- that's that's part of my um my approach with my kids is to say that's an amazing dragonfly that that frog's amazing you don't need to see an elephant in on piccadilly circus or in times square for you to feel um feel like you've experienced nature
1: right or as you said uh, as a friend of mine once said when i was going to go to a country that i'd always been reluctant to go to because i worried about the way people and animals were treated and she said why don't you have the discovery channel so we're going to (laughs) come right back after this quick break and finish up talking with Henry Mance about how to love animals in a human-shaped world. We'll be right back. This show is also brought to you by Evermore Pet Food, privately owned by two women who make cooked dog food frozen in pouches shipped directly to your home. The show is also supported by Earth Animal, holistic pet wellness products, privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein. I am back with Henry Mance, How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World, and all of you might be wondering, well, you haven't mentioned dogs or cats yet. Oh, he does. Don't worry. It's just that we all know a a lot, a fair amount about dogs and cats and how they thrive and how they suffer and how we can do better by them. But there is a chapter called It's Not About the Dog, and I just have to ask Henry to read it because it is just the beginning of the chapter, so funny, so different, just such a, a different... Way of looking at our madness about dogs. So, if you would, Henry, read chapter eight and read the two quotes that are at the beginning of it as well.
0: Mm -hmm. The first quote is by David Hockney Idiots that we are, we have lost our link with nature, even though we are part of it completely. All of this will end one day. What lessons will we learn? I'm 83. I'm going to die. We die because we are born. The only things that matter in life are food and love in that order. And also, our little dog, Ruby. (laughs) Be the person your dog thinks you are. Unknown. He's antisocial. I can understand why. Simba is a corgi in fancy dress. He has two antennae, each with a mini American football on the end. His front legs have sweatbands. Safe to assume this wasn't his idea. It's mainly for the humans, says his owner superfluously. Welcome to CorgiCon San Francisco, where dogs are dressed ridiculously and then shoved together on a beach. Or perhaps just, welcome to California. (laughs) My first impression of CorgiCon is, it's glorious. Around me are people dressed as corgis and corgis dressed as people. Eliza, my daughter, and I pass corgis dressed as a shark, a lifeguard, a snowman, a pilot, a horse with a cowboy on the back, a piñata, and Chewbacca from Star Wars. The latter two are overweight. There is a corgi with a bandana and a shirt reading, Bitches Love Me. Another man wears his dog in a baby harness. I was halfway through my three-month work stint in San Francisco. If you, if you spent years overdosing on stories about how different Silicon Valley is, the place feels sadly sober. Except for one thing, almost everyone is drunk on dogs. Mark Benioff, founder of software firm Salesforce, appointed his golden retriever as the company's chief love officer. But this isn't just a billionaire thing. Americans are are twice as likely as the French to own a dog. California takes dog owning to to extremes, and CorgiCon is one of many eye-opening results. The last time I saw a group of Corgis, they were in a stately photo with Queen Elizabeth II. Now they're on a miniature wooden pirate ship. Complete with three-cornered hats for the dogs.
1: Well, it is just a great description, and then, and then you, of course, do go on and, in, in, in very many intellectual and philosophical ways about our relationship with, with dogs. I will say that friends of mine who um, always had a, a mixture of dogs, from, from Irish wolfhounds to, to, all kinds of really big dogs, and uh, Dakota was a. Uh, some sort of a great hunting dog. They they became pug lovers and owners, and they only get them from pug rescue. And every year, this is outside of London, about an hour outside. There is a pug party just like your corgi party. So I don't want you to think it's just California and just the Californians <laughs> are barking mad. And that was a pun on purpose. They put up an entire party tent on their gigantic back lawn, and every year this party is held somewhere with food and drink and the and their the pugs come dressed in incredible fancy dress. It was before some Olympics and two of the pugs were the Olympic um, underground tube train. They they were dressed as it together. And I was the the judge having written the dog Bible. I was the (coughs) celebrity judge, which is rather funny, of who won. There was one as an Olympic swimmer. I mean, I I, I don't have your facility with description as, as great as yours was, but it was hilarious. And Yes, it was 100% pug and pug, pug wear and pug things you could buy with pugs on them and pug pens. And it, it's great. I mean, we are, we are completely besotted and crazy about dogs, all of us. I'd like to jump, though, to your chapter about the sea, because I think most of us are really not aware of what's going on with the with the mollusks, not just the fish that we're eating, and and what really goes into fish farming, and what really goes into uh, sushi grade tuna, and uh, I, I think just a very a very short reading I'd love you to do is about an auction for a, a famous auction, not not for the tuna, but it's in Galicia in Spain which is where you say Galicia specializes in two things, pilgrims and fish. It has the biggest pilgrimage site in Europe, Santiago de Compostela. It also has Europe's biggest fishing port, Vigo. More than 300,000 pilgrims arrive every year. So does 600,000 tons of fish. The difference is that the Catholics come more or less voluntarily. That's just <laughs> such a Henry Mance way of describing something. But if you would just, just do the auctioneer, I just want people to know that when you're reading this, you will laugh and be amused and delighted. It's not something that feels like you're you're being lectured at or you're taking your medicine or you're or you're being shown what's what so if you would just read this little bit about the auctioneer as they're auctioning off the fish Mm -hmm.
0: the auction begins the numbers go downwards nine euros 8.95 8.90 8.85 men with loud hailers read the prices with the emotional investment of parking wardens this is not Sotheby's But my favourite of the auctioneers occasionally pauses and looks up from his notepad with the disappointment of a man who has just crashed his car into his living room and stubbed his toe, escaping from the wreckage. None of the traders take much notice, but I admire the effort. In these auctions, the price would fall to a level where a trader indicated interest. At this point, the trader would inspect the fish properly, flipping them over from one crate to another, looking for damage. The advantage of counting downwards is if the trader decides the fish isn't worth what he's offered, the countdown resumes where it left off. This happened multiple times, men putting their hands back in their pockets. The disappointed auctioneer would look even more disappointed, as if, having already crashed his car and stubbed his toe, he had also forgotten to defrost his dinner.
1: <laughs> it's just great. I mean, it's just so delightful. But two things that that really stood out for me. One was octopus. Now, you had already investigated and learned and known about the the extraordinary qualities of an octopus. I had my awakening only from this wonderful documentary which also won an an Oscar. So the Oscar seems to have the Oscars in several movies seem to have helped Uh, us Mm. learn more and know more in the case of Minari about about uh, chick hatcheries and culling the males in this case my friend the octopus had you seen that that movie it probably hadn't come out yet but you had you you had many other there have been books about octopi but were you had you seen that movie
0: i hadn't i've seen it now my octopus teacher and i think it's a really wonderful um uh a a wonderful film and i think you know for me one of the things that it, it illustrates is that octopuses are these intelligent um animals whose whose intelligence is so different from ours that we struggle to understand it and yet they live such short lives you know a a year and they're gone and i think for us we see intelligence as something you develop over a long life and that you you know you you gain the powers of memory and Mm -hmm. and exploration and they they have it so differently they've evolved it so differently but I, i but but yet we eat them, and we eat them, you know, without a second thought. In some parts of the world, and indeed in in America and Britain, in, especially in Spain and in uh, northwestern Spain. So, so I I, I really wanted um, to to bring that home. And uh, Tracy, you point out that you know we we find it out a little bit here and a little bit there. And part of what I wanted to do is to say, you know, we've seen all these crumbs in our lives. You know, many people have looked at a dog and seen a seen a real thinking animal there, and yeah, they've looked They've looked at the cow and also seen the same thing but they haven't quite connected it to their behavior and they haven't quite thought what does that mean? What does that mean for the way I interact with, with food or the way I, I think about the world? And so I, I, I think my book is, is slightly bringing together lots of threads that people have, have, have come across and sometimes you need to hear the message more than once and you yes. need to hear it when you're ready. I know people who Uh, who haven't become vegetarian yet, but are on a path that may lead them to that and that they haven't sort of appreciated that their, their love for their dog should also lead to a love for wild animals or a love for farm animals, etc. But I I see that path that path opening up, and it's it's a message we'll we we sort of learn gradually, in my experience.
1: Well, but also to understand that it, it the picture has more depth. It's it's a three D picture. We're sort of seeing things in two D. For example, oh, we're also many of us are so you know holier than thou. Oh, I I did once own fur, but I would never ever. Oh my God, no! I I gave them all away to the goodwill or whatever we all did with our fur coats and those of you still wearing fur. Turns out those of us wearing goose down and quite proud of that as, oh, down's a great alternative. I mean, in the book, you describe where goose down comes from and how it is uh, obtained. It, it is not without animal suffering, folks. I mean, did that surprise you to learn about that in some cases, these little baby goose chicks, geese, or their down is plucked out while they're alive so they'll grow some more?
0: Yeah, I, I mean that's really heartbreaking, and I think, I think for me the lesson of the book, and that's a great example. Leather is a, is another tricky one, is that if you're if you have if you're demanding really large quantities of an animal product, then you're going to sort of create this cycle of breeding and industrial farming, which is very hard to control. Yes, and I, I ultimately we like to think that we. We can harness animals that we can really control them, and we've actually grown to a size of population where that's very difficult. I mean, eight billion people all having as much leather, meat, milk um, as they want—it it really demands um, it demands a system which I don't think I don't think fits with our values. And um, one of the things when I talk to farmers is that they would always say, "Well, look, we have to produce meat at this price or milk in this way because people demand it." And when I spoke to people who consume those products, they would say, "Well, look, farmers are good people. they wouldn't produce it right. if if it's in good conditions and so there's a kind of n- n- neither side really knows the reality of this, and That's I think right. that if um if at all possible, we should look for alternatives where the strain on on um on the w- the world and the environment is less and I really think that in terms of your footprint on this earth, can you make your footprint a little bit smaller, a little bit better mm-hmm. are, can mm-hmm. you can you Ensure that you 're not treading on on everything and that you're you 're not forcing animals to be to be bred and to be separated from their young i mean I, I, I talk in the in the you know one I took in the book about hunting and I feel that yes. hunting actually is something we 've completely demonized and you know i, I don 't hunt i 've never hunted um, but fox hunting was the most polarized debate here, and uh, trophy hunting the hunting of lions and, and elephants and giraffes is 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 a really polarized debate here. And, you know, I'm not I'm, I'm, I don't really I don't go in for that myself, but I think that actually those lives of those animals uh, are, in, are in many ways better than the lives of of industrially farmed animals because they live wild until they're killed. Now, you can disagree with the killing and say that the killing is brutal and unfair, but then also take responsibility for what you're doing to, to farm animals and industrial animals by demanding that they're produced at low cost. Um, they're always available, et cetera. Exactly. So I think that was that was a shock for me, and I I, I try and I really try not to make it a lecture because I think it's a I, I think you know the incredible thing about our generations now um, is that we. We understand animals. We're willing to believe they have emotions, that they have social lives. When we when we stop and think about it, when we see great documentaries, when we see our own pets, and what we're in a process of is applying that and is thinking right. Okay, I understand that there are social lives that animals have, desires that they want to take decisions for themselves. Can I can I apply that to how I eat and to how I live?
1: And that's really that really, in a nutshell, is the beauty of this book because. You can laugh while you're learning, and you can laugh while you're having a philosophical shift. And little by little, I hope we can all get there. I think this is the end of a, an incredible hour. I really could wish I could sp- have one of those English country house weekends with Henry Mance where everybody would sit around for hours. <laughs> and talk about these things. And I hope that this will inspire conversations amongst you and your friends, and especially with your children. We can do better, and this book will help us do that. How to Love Animals in a Human-Shaped World. Thank you so much, Henry Mance, for an amazing hour.
0: Tracy, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much.
1: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the guests as much as I did. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week. Bye for now.